0: You know that I have been on this weight loss health journey for the past, I would say, year. And I am so grateful to Mindful Wellness because I am down another few pounds, feeling great. Mindful Wellness stands out in a crowded wellness space by offering what you genuinely seek, relief from suffering in a medical world filled with fleeting trends and ineffective supplements. They recognize the challenges posed by our food environment and the stress of daily life, offering a path free from guilt and shame. At Mindful Wellness, it's not just about medications. It's understanding you. And I'm going to tell you, they're so great because anytime I've needed anything, they have been so quick to... Reach out to me to get my answers. If I have a question with anything at all, they're great. They get right back to me. Let's talk about the incredible value mindful wellness offers. Their pricing is truly amazing for the comprehensive care you receive. For mindful wellness weight loss, medication covered is achieved through insurance. You can embark on this journey for just $550 for three months. For those interested in compounded semaglutide, the price is A thousand for three months, offering a sustainable path towards weight loss. And for the cutting edge compounded trizepatide plan, it's only fifteen hundred for three months, providing an innovative solution for those seeking the latest in weight management. I hope that you go to mindfulwellness.com today to book your appointment. Don't let another year go by without taking this crucial step towards wellness. Hi, everybody. You are listening to Judging Megan with your host, Megan Judge. Um, So let let me just start here. Uh, I, I am about to get surgery in two days and I'm a little bit nervous. I've talked to my audience in the past with like all the things that women are fortunate enough to go through in life. I happen to be getting a hysterectomy on Valentine's Day. So nothing says love like getting your uterus removed on Valentine's Day. Um, it could be way worse. I'm getting this removed. We want to make sure I'm fine and there's nothing that I need to worry about because I have had like ups and downs with things going on for the past couple of years. And I'm just not going to freak out about it. And I think my guest today could probably make me feel better about these things. So that's my number one thing. This will come out in a couple of days or no it'll come out next week. So by the time this comes out, I'll be go, going on little walks around my house, I'm sure, and um and being hopefully taken care of really well by my husband. So that's my first thing. My second thing is um I always really appreciate your reviews on Apple. For some reason, Um, I had like, I always was like a five star podcast and then I'm assuming one of the Karens decided to like, leave me a bad review. And so now I'm a 4.9. If, if you all would take two seconds of your time just to leave me a a good review, if you listen every week and you appreciate it, um, just five stars. I prefer if you're going to leave less, um, just don't leave a review. (laughs) And if you're listening and you're a Karen and you hate me, hi welcome this is a good episode to listen to hope you feel good about yourself i'm joking okay so that's that's that we've all been put here for a reason and we all deserve acceptance Judging Megan with Megan Judge. I'm a trauma survivor from a really young age, and I have been diagnosed with complex PTSD in the past few years. I've been surrounded by death and abuse much of my life. I've been dragged through the mud, and I've been to the point of not wanting to go on anymore. Through my interviews with other survivors, I've learned that there is a way out. From recovering to surviving and thriving, we all have the strength to come out the other side. You are listening to Judging Megan. I am now going to introduce my guest, who is extremely inspirational. I read kind of his bio before we started recording, and um, obviously, I really wanted to get this episode out with everything going on in my life. I think this will help most people who probably struggle with something in life. And so, Nick, I'm very excited to have you on, Nick. Smith is a motivational speaker, a coach, and a best-selling author of Through the Fire. The rest of the title is really long, so I told him to hold off because I'm going to mispronounce everything and mess it up until the end of the episode. Nick, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for coming on.
1: Hi, Megan. Thanks for having me.
0: So we're going to... You're welcome, by the way. So we're going to just <laughs> start with... um you, I don't remember how we connected, maybe through LinkedIn, which people don't yep. connect, usually connect with me through LinkedIn. So, and I don't always go on LinkedIn anymore, but I loved that you reached out. And um, I love when men come on to talk about their struggles, whether it be all the things that you've gone through and how much of a survivor you are. And it's just so great to see someone want to share about all the things they've been through in their life and help others so I'm going to start with kind of where you're from where are you from let's start Ooh, I there. like that
1: I oh, am yeah. and it's important I say this because I live in Florida but I am originally from Massachusetts
0: okay all right
1: I am not I from know where you,
0: I know where you're going with this <laughs> <laughs> okay So I, you're. I, I, you're
1: I, I do love Florida but I'm I'm you know, it's been almost 20 years and I'm from I'm from Martha's Vineyard originally. I was the guy who uh, served muffins Vineyard. and coffee. I didn't sail and be rich. And okay. uh, I love... Well, I,
0: I, I love, I love uh, the, I'm an East Coaster originally too. Um, and I spent a summer in Nantucket. It was one of the, my favorite summers of my life and love that area. It's gorgeous. What part of Florida are you from?
1: Um, I live in the Tampa Bay area.
0: Okay. My mom lives in Florida. That's why I'm asking. Um, but Florida is a beautiful state. I love my Florida listeners. I probably lost a few along the way as of late with some of my topics, but I'm really happy to always have listeners from all over the country and all over the world. So you're living in Florida. You grew up on the East coast in Massachusetts. And tell me a little bit about your childhood. Did you have a happy childhood? Um Let's start there.
1: So it's funny that you mentioned about having men on and mental health. And, you know, we we're talking about mm-hmm. stuff like that a little bit, too. So I'm going to actually go out of reverse order a little bit here, because something I talk about a lot lately is vulnerability being a superpower. And, you know, I've been I've been sharing my story here and, and parts of my journey uh, on social media, too, for a little while. And every once in a while, somebody reaches out to me and they're like, hey, man, this isn't a journal you know, or save it for your diary or some nonsense. And uh, I'm never offended by it, though, because my message is not for that person. Mm -hmm. You know, it's for the person who needs it. And Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of times when I do this, I have my virtual background, which is a picture of my living room, which is all of my it's my hundred and fifty Spartan race medals, marathons, hurricane heats. Just I am not afraid of uh, my manhood being questioned. You know, because I'm at a point in my life right now where I can talk about my childhood and the fact that it wasn't an unhappy childhood, Mm -hmm. but I was rejected for my parents' love at a very young age. And I just now really coming to terms with this and realizing that and seeing the impact and effect that it had on my life. So it's not that I had an unhappy childhood. You know, mine was not an after school program. I just had a mom that was incapable of love. And at that time, after my parents' divorce... My father was still trying to get his footing in the world himself, and I was just constantly reminded of what a burden I was and Again, it's not like uh you know I wasn't coming home to a cracked den or or just getting cigarettes put out of my arms or anything like that, but what you don't realize is those subtle punches add up and they they begin to they begin to define your choices and perception of the world, and these things that you know they, they add up so Um, Well, I I I like to say,
0: I like to say, sorry to talk over you that it's, you know, trauma or anything like this is subjective to like whoever it is. Like if I say to somebody, for example, like I lost my dad to cancer at 13 and then somebody says, well, I lost my grandmother. Well, I don't know if their grandmother raised them, you know, like you don't know what that relationship is. So, um, It's I I love when men come on and they want to talk about these things. And just so you know, I occasionally like I just talked about somebody took the time to leave me a negative review. I'm like, I sit here and I talk to people, try and help them every week. If you're going to like go out of your way to leave me a negative review, you're probably not happy with yourself, you know. And this is my whole thing going back to social media in general, that people hide behind their screens. They're not happy with themselves um but i think what you do like i love that you have all your medals and all the things that you've done with your life it's that we need more of that and we need more people like you to be open and willing to share because we have such a lack of um of men that are comfortable doing this and men in particular boys are taught from a young age to bottle up their feelings and not talk about it right so um our suicide rates are the highest they've ever been with boys and men. So the more that we can get people like you to talk about these things, hopefully the better off we'll be long-term.
1: I mean, plus, you know, my crutch for the longest time was alcohol. I'm a recovering mm-hmm. alcoholic. I spent 20 mm-hmm. years in the bottle. And I always thought that I wasn't uh, the woe was me drunk. I always thought I was like happy life of the party drunk. Mm-hmm. But again, I'm now just realizing just how much of... How much of my life that I was trying to protect myself from, you know, I'm 44, I'll be 45 this year. I'm just now acknowledging things from when I was six and seven years old and the impact they had on me. But the importance of that, it's not, it's not therapy. I'm not whining, right? I'm I'm facing it. I'm experiencing it and processing it for the first time. And now it doesn't have that power over me. That shit has held power over me for four years decades while I tried to ignore it. That's poisonous. It makes me an ineffective human being. It makes me ineffective as a man when I'm being held back by mommy issues that I can address. We all have issues, but the hold they have over us, I think, is what, to your point earlier, you know, we all have a a different frame of reference. And now as I'm able to stare at these things, they don't have that same power over me. And if I'm able to help somebody else to, to voice their issue and to get past their trauma, then I'm stronger because of it.
0: Are you, are you doing, I know we're going to kind of get more into your story, but are, do you do, what kind of therapy are you doing if you're comfortable sharing to kind of get past these issues of childhood?
1: I'm not doing any therapy per se. Um,
0: okay.
1: As a recovering alcoholic, I'm in a, I'm in a program of recovery, which helps me with my alcoholism and and life without alcohol. Um, yeah. You know, honestly, just lending voice to it and, and. Mm-hmm. The most therapeutic thing I ever did in my life is when I wrote my book. Actually, I not when I wrote it, when I revised it, you know, when I spent a year just revising and revising and revising and just stripping away the stories, the ego defenses that I had been telling myself. And that's when I really got to start seeing things in a different perspective. And as somebody pointed out to me once, I was reliving it because it would be emotional. I would go out in my back patio to go edit a few chapters and I would. My wife's like, You all right? And I'm like, I didn't realize like I was holding back tears because for 20 years I tried to pretend that it I wasn't scared that I had cancer. Mm-hmm. Like these things weigh on you. They're there, whether or not we acknowledge it or not. And so that was very therapeutic for me in just acknowledging those things. And then now again, lending voice to thought for it is is something that helps because people communicate back. And so I know that I'm not alone either.
0: Yeah. Can you okay so let's back up a little bit. So you're obviously working through I think life and I say this all the time. It's a it's it's a it's a series of tests and maybe this is annoying for people like what is the saying everything happens for a reason and people get annoyed when you say that. But in my opinion, I really believe that um just because I think I've gone through a lot of tests like you in life and I think um, I'll continue to be tested. You'll continue to be tested. We all will. There's no guarantees and it's what you do with it. So I love that you're kind of taking a step back and saying, you know, like I didn't have a perfect childhood and I wasn't loved and uh, enough. And, you know, people have to be able to acknowledge the trauma of their childhood and what it brings us to in adulthood, So a lot of times that is addiction or whatever it is. Um, So let's go a little bit past your childhood and like your parenting, how your parents parented you. And tell me about when you started to really have some issues with addiction.
1: I'm going to go out on a limb and say that I've always had issues with addiction. Okay. I can think back to just various times, even throughout my childhood, even childhood where I expressed addictive qualities. Um, an addict is an addict as far as I'm concerned, whether it be alcohol or candy. You know, it was, I was a feel-good junkie. Um, and I I liked to skirt the rules. Like, I actually was hustling kids on the playground in fifth grade because I would cheat at poker. <laughs> like These are the ways that I... I stacked the deck, like who does that when they're like 11 years old? And I don't know, it was just ways that I made sense of the world. And I always had some sort of a side hustle. I grew up not trusting anyone. And that was part of my armor. That was part of my, my fuel. My strength was this lack of trust. So here I am in the, the beginning of the conversation, telling you how that one of the ways that I am just the most powerful I have ever been in my life right now is because I'm just opening myself up. And yet, you know, back then that was not trusting anyone was how I protected myself. So it's it's funny how those things, you know, tend to evolve. But when I went to college was when I knew that I would have to stop drinking one day. I was 18 years old and I was like, okay. And part of the reason was because I could outdrink most of the other kids. It was like a superpower.
0: So was drinking your like main thing? I mean, I agree with you with addiction, whatever it be. It's just some people have that genetics or they it's just part of them from a young age and some people just don't. And um, so I think that knowing that and being able to talk about it is so helpful to other people. What Were you a drinker in high school or did you really go to college and was drinking your main thing or did it turn into other things?
1: So my dad's in recovery and he's been in recovery pretty much my entire life. And even though I Uh, started the conversation by saying how he wasn't really a great dad when I was like seven, you know, he's like my best friend now. We, we both had a lot of growing to do. Um, but earlier in the early, in my earlier years, he really, he was a hard ass man. And because of that, like I didn't drink that much. So Mm -hmm. when I was home in the summertime, I didn't want to get caught drinking. So literally I would only drink a couple times a summer, Because I couldn't come home if I was going to. And the thing is, is I always had different priorities. Like, again, I grew up on Martha's Vineyard. So I wanted to work. I wanted to socialize. I wanted to get sun. I just, I didn't have time for these other things, you know. But by the time I went to college, I didn't have my old man standing in the way anymore. So I didn't have that last sort of governor. At the same time, that worked against me a little bit. Because when I did drink when I was younger, it was always binge drinking, you know. Mm -hmm. It wasn't like I was able to casually have a couple drinks. Because I'm like, if I'm only going to drink a couple times, I might as well drink it all.
0: So do you think that you were like binge drinking? Were you able to like get to class and do all of that kind of stuff or was it just on the weekends or was it just kind of like that's how you got through school?
1: Oh, I was cursed as a very functional alcoholic. And why I say cursed is because I could have stopped drinking a long time ago had I not been so functional. No, I excelled in school. You know, I worked a full-time job while I was in college. I was on the volleyball team. I worked out. I had a girlfriend. Um... I didn't same thing where I drank mostly on the weekends because I was so involved with these other things. But at the same time, um, I was the guy who could drink all night, get up and just do my thing. I never missed school. I never missed work. I was never late to work. Um, I excelled in my career. I was a VP of sales for what's now approaching a billion dollar company. A lot of these. And this is why I say it's a curse, because I had all these other cues telling me that I was doing so well in life, Mm -hmm. you know, it's just real easy to look at the super, superficial things and think that you're just doing so awesome without realizing that you're poisoning yourself and and everybody around you.
0: Did did you ever think cuz you said I think a few minutes ago you said I knew in high school or I knew in college like I was going to be an alcoholic. Did you did you always kind of hide behind the fact that you were like, well, look at this. Cause that's the thing. When you're an addict, you, a lot of times you're, go, you're going, well, I'm able to get up and do this. And I have an, I have a successful job and I, you know, I make money and I was able to put myself through school. Were you kind of, is that the kind of thing that you kind of went through?
1: No, I, again, I'm going to call myself lucky here because I did have my dad as a role model in sobriety. And, okay, but the thing is, I just, I just knew, I knew I was different. And I knew I was okay. different with alcohol, and <clears throat> there were times where, I, when again, I could out drink like everybody—not everybody, but a lot of people—and but there just came all of a sudden more of those nights where my behavior—I realized it was a, a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde aspect to it—and I didn't like that and i didn't like that guy and i just knew right away too that the only way to arrest that other personality would be at one point to put the bottle down got to keep in mind though i was 18 when i knew that and i was 35 when i stopped drinking
0: okay interesting so what what made you stop drinking did you hit a rock bottom at 35 i hit a
1: bottom i'm okay i'm also and i want to tell you again that i'm very lucky because July 12th of 2014, I was standing in a, well, <laughs> at one point I was standing, I was kneeling on the floor of my hotel in Las Vegas, surrounded by cops, surrounded by security. And they were telling me that I needed to leave because I had just tried to have sex with a hooker in a broom closet while my girlfriend was sleeping in the room next to me. Oh no. And I got thrown out. Oh, it gets worse. I got thrown out of the hotel. She had to leave too. So I had to spin some nonsense about why we had to get thrown out at six o'clock in the morning. I was supposed to be a speaker for our conference at the next day for the job that I was at. And I was trespassed from the hotel. I'm the luckiest alcoholic in the world because I didn't lose my job. I didn't lose my girlfriend. I could have lost whatever self-respect that I had. But when I had just a, a rare moment of lucidity hours after when we finally got a new place to sleep. And that's when I said, I don't want to live this way anymore. Mm-hmm. And it I I didn't make that conscious decision. It just kind of came out. And it was it was that was my moment of desperation and it was a decision. You know, so I don't want to call that rock bottom. Cause there's a long way to go from there still. I could have lost my job. I could have lost my girlfriend. I could have lost my life. I could have ended up in jail, lost my freedom. There's so many more things, and I think you started to allude to this earlier. But that's what we call the yets. You know, it's so dangerous to compare, especially for someone who might be in a, starting to think if they have a problem with some sort of addiction or whatnot, and then they look at other people who are. Getting their seventh DUI, or constantly missing work, and constantly blacking out, and you know they're they're losing their homes and they're losing their jobs and going to jail and all these things, and they're saying I'm not like that person, and it keeps them out longer. But we call those the yets because I wasn't an everyday drinker, I and I didn't get drunk every time I drank, and problems didn't happen every time I got drunk, but they were increasing frequency rapidly, and it was only a matter of time. So even though I hadn't. Been the low bottom drunk yet? I wasn't so arrogant that I didn't think I wouldn't get there. I just knew I wasn't there yet.
0: I've never heard somebody say that. The yets. I think that's really interesting because I think a lot of people do do that. I mean, I've had so, I mean, I've been doing this since 2020 and I've had a ton of people that have struggled with alcohol and drugs on my podcast. And that includes people that have killed people in drunk driving accidents and all kinds of different things. And, um, and I think it's subjective per the person, you know, I've, I was, I've been watching that, that series, the swans about, um, it's a Ryan Murphy series. It's, it's a, I love Ryan Murphy. So he's, one of my favorites. So he does like American Horror Story and all these different shows, and he's doing a show that's on right now with like Demi Moore, Callista Flockhart, and it's about Truman Capote and these women that he they call the Swans. And in the in the series, they show Truman Capote and how he struggled so heavily with with alcoholism. I mean, he died very young. I think he was like fifty nine when he died. And, um, at one point you see him, I was watching it two nights ago, take all his bottles and line them up in a bathroom and just like pour out all the liquor one by one. And the liquor bottles were hidden throughout his hip where he lived. And so he was like going up on shelves and pulling, pouring them out. But it is true. So many people picture that, you know, as like, well, if you're that bad, if you're doing things like that, you're so sick. That's an alcoholic by definition when it just varies per person. Like we said in the beginning, it's subjective per person. But
1: I think one of the, I, I'm sorry, go ahead. Go
0: ahead. No, you go ahead. I was
1: going to say, you mentioned about 2020 and uh, the 2020 alcoholics, as we call it, kind of like the 2020 newbies. Mm-hmm. They're in a very, especially those who haven't returned to regular life. If you mean like, if they if they were sent to work from home and now they're still working from home, problem with a lot of them is they they don't realize they don't realize that they are hurting themselves. They don't realize that they are hurting mm-hmm. people. When you're isolated naturally, it's really hard to see that the impacts of your actions because it's so easy to say, "I'm not hurting anybody but me," and when that's the case, people don't typically make that decision for themselves that early. So they're kind of at a disadvantage because they've been isolated already. Again, I mentioned my dad like seven times already. I don't know if I'm alive, if not for him, because I see a guy who I've seen him so many times in his life without any reason to be happy. And he has always been the happiest guy that I know. I see when him and I would travel together Um, once I was 21, that is, he'd buy, he'd buy me a beer in the hotel bar. We'd go out and shoot pool together like mm-hmm. he And he put it in my head that I can do anything in the world except drink alcohol. I can go anywhere. I can do anything. I can live my best life. I just can't drink alcohol. And not everybody has that same level of exposure, which is also part of the reason I'm so very public and open about the fact that I am in recovery. I am not the poster child for it. All right. Like, I don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. I don't know what today is going to bring. So. I don't ever want someone to look at me and be like, oh, he did it or I can't do it, whatever. Like, but when they see that there is life beyond it, like I do want them to know that, you know, that they're not stuck in having to, to punish themselves for past behaviors.
0: Yeah, I love that. So tell me once you got to that point, you were able, you didn't lose your job. You, you were able to go on. Did you get yourself into recovery right away? And tell me a little bit about that.
1: Um, yeah, I did. I flew home. I was like, uh, I don't know what day it was, but I flew home the day after that. The incident happened around like 5am Vegas time that day. I spent the day in a hotel. The next day I flew home the day after that, I I started attending meetings in in a program of recovery, 12 step program. And and I haven't looked back. Um, I don't want to say that I've never had thought, but I can count on one hand how many times those thoughts have come up or how many times those feelings have actually sort of like come to the surface. And there is an expression that alcohol is cunning and baffling because I feel so confident. I just told you how I can go anywhere and do anything. Yet It wasn't three months ago, four months ago that, uh, I had, I was in Texas and I was at a, I was doing a Spartan race and I got injured in mile 12 of a 30 mile race. And it was a, big race that i cared about and i had a lot of other things going on in life and so i just put so much on to that event but i, I had a uh, bail out of the race when i did it was around 10 o'clock in the morning my flight wasn't till 8 p.m the next day and i couldn't walk there was only one thing i could think to do with all that time and since i had that thought i went to my hotel I asked them to let me check out early, even if I had to pay, which they were nice and didn't charge me for it. I grabbed my stuff and I immediately just drove to the airport and went home. Wow. Like, so you're I, very was,
0: self-aware of the struggles that can kill, can, can, can continue to creep up on you. It's and a I dangerous thought when
1: something like that comes up, you yeah. know, and it was too yeah. natural and it, it's not something I wanted to do. It just, the sheer mm-hmm. fact that the idea even popped into my head, told me I was in a bad place and I needed to leave it right
0: away. Wow. So tell me, like, I know that you've been through a lot. You're also a cancer survivor. You're also you also um, have diabetes as well. Were you diagnosed with diabetes when you were drinking or was all of this afterwards?
1: So I actually got diagnosed in 2007. I was 27 years old. Um, I drank back then, but I didn't drink much. You know, uh, I was actually just I was really struggling with sleep apnea, too. And I had just started using a CPAP around that time. And, you know, the thing is, I was just tired all the time. Like my wife at the time wasn't a big partier. It just wasn't as big of of a part of our lives. Um, And so when I got diagnosed with diabetes, I said, I I quit drinking. I'm just going to quit cold turkey because alcohol is not a friend of the diabetic. Not saying you can't do it, but it's not helpful. And I just wanted to own it. And so I did for a while. And I remember it was like a big deal on my birthday. I had a Land Shark lager. I was like, yeah, cool, a beer. Because I actually enjoyed having a beer. Like, I could have a beer. You know, now I can't because I just don't trust my ability to have a beer.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know?
1: But uh, it was actually... It was about a year and a half where I was—I really did not drink very much. And later that year, about a year and a half later, uh, my sister died. Um, <clears throat> she was she was only twenty five years old, and I went home, um, and I was hanging out with. Uh, she wasn't blood. Uh, we grew up together, but they're my they're my family, and we were together. And I was just with a couple of my other friends, and I just started drinking a few Bud Light limes. And I'm looking at my my Dexcom and checking my blood sugar, and I'm like nothing bad happened. I can drink now. And it slowly started to let the genie out of the bottle. And that nothing bad happened is something I told myself a lot. You know, forget the fact that I was drinking heavily as a diabetic, but nothing bad happened. That same night, I, same night, sister service, same night, I tried hooking up with a local Islander, despite the fact that my wife was back in Florida, but nothing bad happened. I was driving my dad's, truck drunk on the island, but nothing bad happened. These are the lies we tell ourselves. Mm -hmm. And these are the lies I told myself that now I just realize like what a master of self-deception I was.
0: Shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples this time of year is the worst. I feel like I can't do anything and I can't enjoy my dinner because I can't taste my food and I can't work out because I feel tired and distracted. I can't even feel like I can host this show because my voice sounds like a duck. Luckily for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin Clear with Claritin D. Designed for serious allergy sufferers, Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so you can breathe better. I feel like I've been using Claritin D for probably a few months now, and I have really noticed a difference. I can work out. I'm not feeling like my eyes are watering and my nose is all stuffed up. I can speak without feeling like a frog has jumped into my throat. Ready to live life as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter you don't even need a prescription go to claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live claritin clear use as directed i mean it's so common so um th- this is all you know it's almost like a weird thing when i have somebody come on i i i had I recorded maybe like a month ago with a podcaster. Her name is Angela Pugh and I love her. And, um, she's, you know, kind of talked about her story of struggling. She worked in the Hollywood clubs and, um, like I did when I was in my twenties and, you know, alcohol just became a thing for her. And then she got so bad that she just couldn't quit it. And she talked about like how she almost killed herself and someone else. And, you know, that was kind of her wake up call. And like, we just talked about rock bottoms and you, you really were like, that was my bottom, (laughs) you know, like not necessarily my rock bottom, but there's so many times in life that people have like, you almost could have killed someone or you could have killed yourself or you could have killed a kid walking down the street. I mean, there's, and I brought up a story of when I think I was in college or high school and I remember I was drinking and driving And I look back on that period of what I did with such, because now I'm a mom, I have two kids. And I just think that terrifies me, not only because I'm a mom of two daughters and God forbid one of them does it one day, but just the fact that like, that was, that's a miracle that I made it because I could not see the road. I remember being that drunk and So for you to like share that story and tell that story and tell your truth and your honesty, none of these things make you a bad person. You just made a bad decision. And I think there's a lot of people out there that make really poor, bad decisions. And it doesn't help that you had, you know, you don't have, your brain is not able to say I'm drunk. That's the other thing with alcohol or drugs. You're not functioning like with a regular, your brain is um, not capable of being able to say I'm too drunk to drive. Right. So, um, I just, I want to, I want to point out like, thank you for sharing that because people can be so judgmental about sharing things like that. I mean, like I said earlier, Martin Lockett, who's a friend of mine who spent 17 years of his life in prison for killing somebody. He's not a bad person. He's not a bad guy. He made a really bad, bad, bad decision that night. And now he spends his life talking to people about not getting in a car and drinking and driving because it took 17 years of his life away from him and he killed someone. Um so I think that's important to point out. I just wanted to say that
1: I think the point you just made is uh is so key because that's something that I think about all the time, especially when it comes to drinking and driving. I mean the amount of blackouts and then I got home, I'm like oh, I yeah, I, I hated myself. And that's what I mean by those yet yeah, because it's statistically improbable to think that it wouldn't have happened, you know, but somebody actually uh, when we talk about some of the negative comments, somebody commented on a podcast I recorded and tell about some of my alcoholism story uh, about a month ago. And they were like, dude wants a cookie because he after he did all this bad shit, wants a cookie because they don't do it anymore or something like that. And I'm like, well, actually, no, no, just getting sober is is good for you, but you don't get a cookie for that. Like, congrats, you're not hurting yourself and other people anymore. The cookie comes when you do something positive with that. You know, the, the positive, the, the guy that you were just talking about, like, it's awful that he lost that time. It's awful that somebody lost their life. And maybe, just maybe, he could prevent somebody else from losing theirs. That's a valuable life right there. And that's
0: it all sure I can hope is. to do. It sure is. And, um, and- like I had judgment about people when he came on the podcast, like this is a little sidebar um, about that. I would give him a platform to talk and tell his story, but you know, life we're all heavily, heavily flawed. I mean, we're people, we're human beings. We were all going to make mistakes in life. And the fact is, is that he did something really bad. He knows it and he's turned his life around and he spends his life now talking to kids and, Adults and people that are maybe not bad people, but made a bad decision and got behind the wheel of a car. And and he's preventing that person from spending 17 years of their life in prison and ruining countless lives because he killed someone, you know. So I think it's important um, that we... As human beings, like we're in a culture right now where it's so negative and everybody is beating each other up. I mean, I was watching, I'm sorry for the sidebar, Nick. I do this all the time, but um I was watching the Super Bowl last night. Um, and I am a Chief fan. And uh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm and I'm a California girl, so you would think I would be a 49 ers fan. but I've only become like a recent Football fan, and it's not because of Taylor Swift. It's because I watch my nephew plays football, and then I watched this Kelsey Brother documentary in this documentary on Netflix called "Quarterback" about Mahomes, and that's when I became a fan of the Chiefs. So that was like a year ago. Anyways, everybody was attacking this morning and last night poor like Taylor and Travis, you know, about everything. There's this video of Travis screaming at his coach. And I was thinking to myself, well, if that was any other player, would they have been like, you're a bad person? You're awful. You beat your wife. Like that's what the, uh, like is all over like page six and everything today. It's like, we're a culture where we just want to attack people and instead like take a step back. And, and like let people share their stories. We have more in common as human beings. And if we kind of stopped making everything so left and so right and beating each other up and attacking each other, we wouldn't be in the situation where we're in right now. And so that's my little sidebar. I know I'm going, I go off on these tangents, but want to pipe in on that before we move on?
1: I, I will actually. And um, because cause it's, I thought of something earlier too. So I'm going to call myself out for something. In 2020, I was already working from home. And I, uh, I even thought of a sequel to my book and I was thinking of calling it above the storm. And I honest to God thought that I was doing a tremendous job of rising above the noise mm-hmm. And I probably was. Cause I wasn't getting into mudslinging with a bunch of strangers or anything like that. But the fact that I thought I was elevated above other people clearly tells you that I was not in the right headspace. And You know, and yet at the same time, just because I didn't get in arguments, I know that I was resentful towards others for their actions, their their words, their behaviors, and so here I am, just judging other people the whole time, like, and that's just a a very slippery slope. So I hadn't risen above anything, if anything, I just thought I I had made myself a little bit of a pedestal that nobody else was gonna you know notice. But I will tell you that the last couple of years, the way to rise above the noise and the fray isn't simply by not engaging and it's definitely not by talking trash about the people who are in it. It's what I'm doing now. It's what you're doing now. It's about just spreading positive messages of inspiration. That's it. Period. Help lift other people up and that's how you rise above. We can do that all together. I talk about social media all the time and I think the biggest fallacy is people on social media telling you to get off social media. (laughs) really like okay tell you what you choose your feed social media is yours it's your login your preferences so if somebody's complaining about social media is negative all the time no it's not you are because you choose that audience that's what you look at that's what you choose to consume i don't consume that thank god for 2020 because i got rid of everybody who was in that cesspool i don't care what side of the aisle you're on i just i don't choose to live in negativity
0: no, I think it's so true. And um, so I appreciate you saying that. Like I've said before a million times, social media is the greatest thing in the world, but it's also the worst thing in the world. And as a parent, it's terrifying. Um, I can't so, begin with parenting. <laughs> yeah, I'll, le- I'll leave it at that. So I want to hear about th- surviving cancer because you've been through so much. What? When were you first diagnosed with cancer? So you're dealing with the you're dealing with the drinking, you got sober, kind of hit your bottom, as you say. Um, But then what was the diagnosis, your first diagnosis post? um, No, um, I was first diagnosed
1: in 2005. Um, And, you know, I drank and stuff back then, but drinking wasn't really a part of my life. Like, I mean, I could Mm -hmm. go out and binge drink for a weekend, but It was just too easy to feel like a normal 24 year old at the time. Um, So my first diagnosis came in 2005 and it was completely random. I was living in a small apartment in Milford, Massachusetts. Uh, It was January. It was four degrees outside. The building was 500 years old with a heating system about as old. And the reason I tell you all that is because I started waking up in the morning with this dark substance on my tongue. And we later discovered that it was blood, dried blood. And so I tell you about the heating and all that, because I'm just going to skip ahead to this part of the story is we never identified the source of the blood. I went and saw every damn doctor in the world and nobody could tell me where it was coming from. However, I'm now just convinced that my gums were bleeding because of the the air quality and all that jazz in the apartment. But because of that, it led me to an endocrinologist and he is he's feeling around my throat and all of a sudden he goes, hey, what's that? It was the strangest thing because I had never even heard of thyroid cancer before. And yet I knew I had it just from that little moment. It was, I don't know, call it intuition. Maybe I just, maybe I'm just making this up to myself, but I just, I knew it was cancer. And so he orders a biopsy. And if you've never had a biopsy of the neck, the best way to describe it is like that scene in Casino where Joe Pesci is just stabbing the guy with a pen. It was pretty violent and, and really not comfortable. And I don't care what they tell you. It sucked. I mean, I was like. Just like you're like exhausted at the end of it. It was miserable because they got to get the cells and all that jazz. And ugh. Anyways, that was probably the worst part of it because then they did surgery. Um, and when they took out half the thyroid and my follow up was pretty simple. They gave me something called radioactive iodine, which is not chemo and it's not radiation. It's a pill and you don't feel a thing. Like, in fact, you just feel normal, but you're radioactive. So I actually had to go hide out from the world for three days. I couldn't be around another person because I was, in fact, radioactive. And the irony here is it was now May in Massachusetts. So springtime, let's go outside. I'm like.
0: (laughs) So how long? I've never even heard of this. So how long did you have to take the medicine? You said three days? Just once.
1: No, yeah, you just take it. You literally go to the hospital and. It had to be a specific hospital. It was like this—the like the nuclear medicine is what it's called. And when you walk in the room, everybody there is wearing hazmat suits but you. <laughs> and then they give you a Dixie cup with a pill in it. And that pill is radioactive iodine. It sounds scary just because of everything I just explained to you. But honestly, as you go to the doctor, you take a pill, you go home and watch TV for three days because I felt fine. And then
0: I've never even heard of this. I didn't even know that that was a thing. That's crazy. Yeah. So then, okay. So then you were. Go ahead. Go ahead. Finish what you. I was going to say
1: they did have to prescribe me medicine for the rest of my life because I no longer have a functioning thyroid. Okay. Um. But that was just the first cancer.
0: Okay. So then you go back to drinking after that. You had you. I had diagnosed- really, drinking
1: really wasn't. I was still drinking. Like I always, I was yeah. always drinking since I was younger, but it wasn't like a regular thing. Like I really didn't start getting into the bottle consistently at all till two thousand nine, two thousand ten. So I was already my second So that was all, drug, This
0: was all after the diagnosis of the cancer, and then the diagnosis of the diabetes,
1: and the sleep apnea, okay. and and the nerve damage. All of that
0: stuff. Okay. So and, the, me- and cancer
1: for the second time.
0: So when was, when did you get diagnosed for the second time?
1: It was two years later in 2007, I was now living in Florida and it was after I got diabetes. Uh, diabetes so I was seeing an endocrinologist and then he ordered an ultrasound as regular follow-up for my thyroid cancer. And if you've ever had an ultrasound, there's sort of a, a pattern to these things, you know, it's like click, click, picture, click, click, uh-huh. picture.
0: I've had a million of them. Yeah yeah
1: I don't know if there's any truth to what I'm about to say,
0: uh-huh. but
1: I felt there was a pattern. and then the pattern was interrupted, and I knew that I had cancer again. It was like click, click, picture. Then it was like click, click, picture, 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 click, picture. I'm like, okay, they saw something that wasn't supposed yeah. to be there. And sure enough, yeah. another biopsy, another <laughs> took the rest of it out, and uh, more radioactive iodine. And maintaining the uh, and maintaining the Synthroid. So that was in 2007, where at that point I did not have a thyroid. And when we fast forward to, I've been doing regular checks at Moffitt Cancer Center ever since then. And that's when I was at Moffitt Cancer Center in 2013, when the, I don't remember what set it off, but maybe the blood markers came back high or something. And then they did the ultrasound and they found a nodule um, and they biopsied it again. Only this time, it's a very small nodule. It's pressed behind my vocal cords. It's borderline inoperable. And so I had a choice to make. I could get a dangerous surgery. Mm. I could get, there was something called alcohol obliteration, which was another way of trying to kill it. But apparently that had a lot of drawbacks too. Or the doctors convinced me to just let it sit. And that was a really hard thing for me to deal with because I'm an action guy. But I mean, in 10 years, it's still sitting there. However, the difference between this time and the other times is now I was well into the throes of my alcoholism. And so I wasn't mad. I wasn't scared. I was relieved. I was almost happy to hear that I had inoperable cancer because I was at that point where my drinking was a problem. I recognized it was a problem. But the only problem I cared about was the problem that everyone else was annoying me. And now that I had inoperable cancer what are you going to do about it? Hey, Nick's drinking. Yeah, but he has cancer. Oh, Nick's drunk again. Yeah, but he has operable cancer. Like, it was like a gift to me. That's how warped my psyche was at that time.
0: I mean, that's... So how... So let's kind of go fast forward into the future. So you knew that you had this cancer. It was inoperable. You got sober. Are you still living with it today? Yep. Okay. Now, if it weren't for the fact that I was doing
1: this, yeah, Yeah. uh, if it weren't for the fact that I was doing this, I would forget about it. Like probably since October, mid-October is when I left my corporate job to become a speaker and coach. And since then, I've been doing a a number of podcast shows and obviously just talking about cancer more and more. But most days I forget it's there. Um, It's grown 20 percent which might sound really scary but something really small growing 20% is still really small and it's tough because every time you go to get a checkup it's always going to be bad news either you have cancer and it's it hasn't excuse me it hasn't grown or changed so we can't do anything about it which obviously is good news that it hasn't grown or changed but you still have cancer <laughs> or hey guess what it's grown a lot and now we have to do some sort of an invasive and dangerous surgery i mean there's really no wind to it mm-hmm. i just had to accept that i have it i had to accept that and this was a mindset shift for me because i went from oh, wow, well, i have cancer to wow i have to live with cancer my whole life like to i get to live with cancer but now i'm a little bit different now it's more like <laughs> cancer has to live with me because i'm gonna that. live hard I'm going to live yeah. my life, fuck cancer. And that's, <laughs> that's why. I'm, I will probably die with this tumor, but I will not die from it.
0: I love that, Nick. Wait, so tell me, are you, so you're really heavily into like racing and that kind of stuff. Did you start that be, with, because you knew that you had this diagnosis? Tell me a little bit about that.
1: So it was actually, it was actually right after the fourth time I got cancer. Now the fourth time was different. Because it was in the back of my head and it was completely random. I was getting a massage, actually, and my massage therapist was like, hey, what's that? I'm like, oh, great. And by the way, as soon as she did it, I knew. And I was actually going to Moffitt for my uh, regular ultrasound. And I asked them to, hey, while well, you're back there. If you could hit that up. But you should have seen them. They were like, they, were, they just weren't used to somebody ordering off the menu. but I'm like just do it and sure enough you know they were like okay there's a nodule and they had to do a couple a couple biopsies which was equally as painful despite being in the back of the head and it was weird because I actually got conflicting like lab reports one said cancer the next one didn't we're like okay and so literally did two different biopsies they canceled surgery rescheduled surgery I just wanted the damn thing out and so they took it out finally and I didn't have to do any follow-up. They were like, OK, yeah, there was some cancer cells in there, but they're they're not spreading whatever we there's no we nothing else is anywhere else. You don't need radioactive iodine. You don't need chemo. You don't need radiation. We got in that little trunk. Go. And I'm like, huh. I won. I, I won one. Like, what do you mean? Because since 2005, I've been asking this one question over and over. And I said, how mm-hmm. does it end? You know, ever since I got cancer the first time you're going in for surgery soon, good luck with that if I don't say it first, but there's a definitive outcome of that. Mm-hmm. What there wasn't with cancer, once cancer is a part of your life, it is always a part of your life. It's always going to be there. And it was very hard for me to accept that. And so now that I had, you know, and I, I was kind of surprised by this, all this all clear. And then it was about a month after that, my boss walks into my office and he's like, Hey. want to do a spartan race in a couple weeks i want you to do it with me (laughs) no (laughs) no a 10 mile trail run with obstacles no way i have no interest in being that uncomfortable but that's when i went home that night and i took stock of like everything i had just told you in my life really and i was like okay you know i've been through all this i've been through that i've been through that And right now I had just been promoted at work. I had just beaten cancer decisively for the fourth time. I'm dating a woman that's my now wife. Like everything in my life was going great and I felt uncomfortable. I was lost and I realized I had not overcome my adversity. I had only survived it. I needed a change. I needed to do something. I needed to take control of my life. And so I said, yes, let's do this race. Nine weeks, commit. And it changed my life. Those nine weeks were about commitment and discipline and fitness, but what it really was about defying everything that I previously believed about myself. I didn't think I could wake up early to train. I didn't think I could run. I didn't think I could, you know, beat diabetes. I didn't think I could do all these things. And every step I took, I just found out that I was wrong. And so I did this race and I came out feeling like I had just conquered the universe. We thought it was going to be one and done. That was on a Saturday. The next day, my wife and I spend the day out by Flagler Beach. It's really nice. That's on the Daytona side. It's December. It's like perfect Florida weather. Just I felt the serenity, you know, this like true achievement, like this mind, body, spirit, like it connected. And so I went back to work on Monday. I walked into my boss's office and we just pulled up the whiteboard and started planning IRA season for the next year. (laughs) Yeah. And it was through all, all those things. And it just kept there was so many vital moments that happened over the course of the next couple of years that created the lifestyle and created the life that I'm living now and gave me the ability to continuously learn these lessons from my life. Because obstacle course racing is a hobby for a lot of people, but it's a lifestyle for a lot of people too. And the thing about overcoming obstacles is overcoming obstacles is overcoming obstacles, whether it be climbing over a 10-foot wall, a rope, or carrying something heavy on a race course, or having a surgery, going through job loss, having cancer. It's always about what is the knowledge and skills required to overcome this thing, and how do we acquire the knowledge and skills and strength to overcome these things? And then once we've done it, what have we learned, and how do we help others?
0: Okay. So I'm going to say one thing. I love what, I love what you just said. And I'll, and I'm going to tell you, so as a kid, I never was like in high school, I played like field hockey, which back East, you'll get it. Cause we play field hockey back East. Girl, nobody plays field hockey in California. They think, I don't even, I'm think familiar with me. field hockey. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. They might, they think it's weird. Um, but I was never like, I was always like the actress and the dancer and the singer. I did all that kind of stuff, but I never was the athlete. My two sisters and my brother are all athletes. My dad was an athlete, but I never was a runner. Like I hated running, hated, hated, hated it. And then I got to be like probably in my twenties, like late twenties. And I've been with my husband since my twenties. And he said one day, he said something like, "I," somebody said, do you want to run a marathon for, for AIDS, for AIDS? uh, the AIDS foundation. And so it was a friend of mine, Heather. And my husband said, Megan, you've never run in your life. You're not, he wasn't trying to be mean, but he was trying to be like, are you really going to do this? And like, I guess like you a little bit, I just went, I'm going to do this. I'm going to like, I know I can do this. And I hope my listeners listening, you know that you're capable of anything. I mean, I've had people come on that don't have legs and have been paralyzed in accidents. And when you really put your mind to something like you just said, or I did, I ended up running two full marathons and a half marathon. And this is somebody that like, wasn't even running. Like I didn't even run like probably a mile unless I had to for a sport in high school. That feeling that you're kind of talking about. It's like the most fulfilling feeling as a parent, as a mom who has two children, that's the best feeling that I've ever had in my life is meeting my two babies. But the feeling of accomplishment of finishing a marathon or putting your, putting yourself into like, it doesn't even have to be a marathon. It could be anything. We're, we're capable of things. And like you said, like you're, you have this diagnosis of cancer and it's not going to, it's not going to beat you. You're going to keep living your life and beating this cancer. And that doesn't mean you might overcome it. You're just going to live with it, but it's not going to beat you. You're going to keep living your life. And I think that's such an important lesson for people to know that you're capable of anything. You really honestly are. So thank you for saying that because it's your story is so beautiful. It's so incredibly powerful when you really think about all the things that you've been through and you've just kind of been like honest about it throughout, you know, like a lot of people wouldn't admit to their bottom in the hotel room with, you know, their girlfriend in the next room, all the things that you've kind of talked about are so important for people to hear. So thank you for that.
1: I think that's my power is just all I can be is authentic about it. And, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: you know, I'm not an elite athlete. I don't win these things. Um, I'm not, I'm, I'm not likely to, you know, it's not what it's about for me. And it's really important. Like I actually, if you <clears throat> were to look at some of my social, I post obstacle failures too. Mm-hmm. You know, yes, I like to post videos of like obstacle videos and stuff like that. But I also post the failures because I just, I don't want anyone to ever look at me and think that I can do what they can. And I love what you said about adaptive athletes too, because I talk about this all the time. But one of the greatest things about obstacle course racing is that, inspiration is everywhere. You just have to look for it. And I mean, inspire yourself to your point earlier, just do something you think you can't do. I think a marathon is a great thing because anybody can do a 5k. Anybody can right now, no training, nothing. You can walk, you can crawl, you can roll three miles. Marathon is a little bit of a different thing. It takes, it's mental. It is a Mm -hmm. mental thing to get through that marathon. Like you see my picture of the Boston marathon behind me. It was 18 degrees that morning. It was the worst weather conditions in the history of the Boston Marathon. It was my first marathon. It's all mental. (laughs) Like, and that's what I love about these long races, that physical endurance training is mental endurance training. So the other day on Saturday, I went out for a 90-minute run. Slow run, purposely slow run. And those are really hard to do because you're like, oh, my God, I'm going so slow. Oh, my God, I'm bored. Like, what Mm. the... And you just want to let go. But that's when you say, this is where we do the mental training. Like, this is where I just need to be able to stay in the moment, stay present, and just stay focused on what I'm doing right now. That's a skill. That's all you're doing is sharpening a skill that applies to everything else in the world. If I can suck up an hour and a half boring suffer fest, I can sit through a a tough meeting. I can sit through a tough situation with someone else. Like, it's just mental training. And In obstacle course racing, uh, sorry, I was just going to say that one of the other things about the inspiration is that when you inspire yourself, it might be the obstacle that you beat, that you've never beat before. It might be running and finishing a race, but it might also be seeing the adaptive athletes out on the course who are showing you what mental toughness really is. Because people who are a lot less able-bodied than me do some seriously badass stuff out there, and they are just some of the most mentally tough warriors I think I've ever seen.
0: Another thing too, about what you just said is at the end of the day, like we're sitting here on a podcast, we're talking about like, Oh, I, this was my accomplishment. That was your accomplishment. But I think the most fulfilling thing as a human being is being, you're only with your own brain and your own head. Nobody else knows what's really going on in there. Right. And so much of my days I, I, I spend like beating myself up. I mean, I this is something l- like I will be working on for the rest of my life is not beating myself up. The feeling of accomplishment of of doing something like, you know, I've never done the Spartan race, but like for me, like let's say running the half marathon or running the marathon. And finishing that and the accomplishment that I felt of just being like, I did this. It wasn't something like, it was something great that people told me I couldn't do. And I did it anyways. We're, we're only you and I, and everyone else that's listening to this, we're living with ourselves. We're living in our own heads. So it doesn't matter what I tell you listeners or Nick tells you, it's what you tell yourself. And if you tell yourself, you know what, I'm going to go outside and I've never gone on one walk before that's a mile long. Well, you can do it. Or like I'll use Rick wary. Who's one of my favorite people and, you know, does these, um, he plays, I don't remember what it is. It's like roller hockey, but he's a paraplegic and you know, he, he didn't want to go on. He he was able to like get up and do it. You're able to get up Nick and, know that you're living with cancer every day and do these things. And and so I think it's such an important lesson. For the sake of time, I do want to ask you this one last question because I could talk to you all day. <laughs> what do you tell people? Like, so say you're, you, and I know you speak a lot and you're a writer and we're going to talk about your book at the close, but what do you say to someone that was just diagnosed with cancer? Ooh. Is there any advice that you could give someone Because I love what you said that it's, you know, people go into this knowing that, you know, it's the C word. Nobody wants to hear the C word. It's the scariest word that you can pretty much hear. So what do you tell people? Is there any advice for someone that you tell them?
1: There is. And I have to tell it in a story because I tell everything in a story. Go for it. (laughs) Um, I ran a race in June of 2022 and I broke my rib in the third mile of an eight mile race and I finished the race. And it was excruciating. It was one of the stupidest and most painful things I've ever done. But here's the part of the story I didn't tell you is that was the first time that I raced with fuck cancer across my chest. And I did it because a couple of my friends were recently diagnosed and were struggling um, mentally with with their illness and the things they were going to have to go through and all of that unknown. And I just didn't know any other way to help so i did that sent some pictures whatever spartan races are family friendly events and there were kids around and i was concerned that maybe i shouldn't drop the f-bomb on my chest where everybody's gonna see it and right before the race somebody came up to me with this kid right there too And i was like oh god here it comes he didn't curse me for it he thanked me for it because his wife was going through breast cancer i got things like that all day from people about their family members or friends, their own diagnosis and stuff like that. And that's why I race like that all the time. And it's not for me. It's for the people going through it. It's for the people we've lost through it. The people that are there with those people. And the simple message is this, because the only thing I think I can say to anybody with cancer is you are not alone. And that's why I did it because our experiences after those first three words of you have cancer, everything out that is going to be a different and unique experience from one another, But I think we all have that one moment, that one experience when we hear those words for the first time.
0: Thank you for saying that. It is, it's a really hard thing. I mean, I know because I, my dad was diagnosed with leukemia when I was 12 and I think it's important to know that it's not a lifelong sentence. There's so much science now and, you know, people are living with cancer, whereas maybe 20 years ago. 10 years ago, the rates were not as successful now. So thank you again for everything you, you do. And you are, I think you're amazing. Can you you. tell my audience the full name of your book? Because I didn't (laughs) want to make, I didn't want to ruin it. So, so share that and share where everyone can find you.
1: All right. The book is called Through the Fire, the story of the four time cancer survivor, type one diabetic and recovering alcoholic who became an obstacle course racer and defied it all. It is on Amazon in paperback, hardcover and Kindle. And I don't know when this is going to air, but if it's uh, on the 19th of February, that whole week, it will be free for download on Kindle.
0: OK, it'll air by then. So it will. Yeah your this episode will be out by then um can where can people find you on social media website share that with my audience
1: i am everywhere on the internet at stride motivation that's at stride motivation on any social channel i post daily motivational videos obstacle videos life lessons whatever and then also my website is stridemotivation.com where i'm available for speaking engagements coaching engagements and high fives
0: Oh my God, I love a good high five. Too bad it's virtual, but I'll give you one right now because I need I one because of Wednesday. Um, so in closing, everybody, I'm changing my clothes. I've been using, so Nick, I had, I've had been doing this since 2020. I had, have had two different clo- like closes that I always close the podcast with. My last one that I've been using probably for the past year and a half is be happy by making other people happy because my dad used to say it. So I've always said that, but anytime I do a social media post, I always do the hashtag you matter. Your story matters. Keep going. And so I've decided that that will be my close moving forward because it's something I say every time I post any kind of story or anytime I meet somebody like Nick or all of my fantastic guests that I've interviewed over the years. And if you are struggling with your mental health and you're, you know, wherever you are, you can always reach out to me. I, I love hearing from my listeners and my audience and um, so thank you, Nick, for sharing again. And in closing, everyone, my new clothes. you matter, your story matters, keep going. Thanks, Nick. Thank you. Judging Megan with Megan Judge.